This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, as we are recording... On Wednesday, the state of Britain is really very questionable. Yesterday, they discovered that they were the only country in the G7, which they always like to quote about how well they're doing against other G7 countries. Well, they had lower growth than any of the others and many others as well. Today is a national strike, almost. It's train drivers, nurses, teachers, civil servants, university teachers. It's an extraordinary array of people, hundreds of thousands of people. And, of course, Zahawi was sacked on Sunday by Rishi Sunak on a question of sleaze, a five million tax bill, much of it in fines. And the Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab, has had 24 complaints at least against him. He is the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Justice. But we're joined now by Chris Johns, former Chief Economist with the Bank of Ireland, now a respected commentator to discuss this. Chris is in London. Chris, it must be very strange to be in Britain at the moment, in London or anywhere else. People are angry, there seems to be a lot of despair, and the government appears to be on its knees. Yeah, you put it very well, Eamon. Uh, The public sector workforce has had enough, clearly. We're in the midst of a day of strikes across, um, if you include the railways as part of the public sector, which de facto they are, they're, they're ostensibly owned by the private sector, but the government's having to get involved in all sorts of different ways, including ownership of certain railway companies. And lots of other civil servants, including teachers, are out on strike. And we know about the nurses and the ambulance workers who have also been staging strikes already this year with more planned to come. The public sector is a particular example of what's going on in that they have been squeezed for years now and uh, they've had enough. They've been asked always to do more with less. And I think the public sector has reached its limits of what it physically can do with regard to doing more with less. And you put the inflation cost of living crisis on top of their low wages and you have the problems that we've got. The British economy, though, is more than the public sector, big big though that is. And um, the private sector's in trouble yesterday. Um, Yesterday, as you saw, uh, the IMF forecast that the UK economy would be in recession in 2023. That's consistent with other forecasters, both uh, public sector like the OECD, 
um, but also a lot of private sector forecasts. The forecasts are probably uh, a little bit more optimistic, actually, than the government's own watchdog forecasting fiscal watchdog, the OBR, um, and the Bank of England. They both expect the UK economy to be actually worse than the IMF says on the basis of their most recent forecasts. It's a bit odd. It's unusual for an economy like the UK to be contracting when the rest of the world is actually growing. Because one of the other things IMF did yesterday for the first time in quite a long time is that it upgraded its forecasts for the world economy. So that made the UK stand out really in stark contrast. And of course, the big comparator economy that everybody here in the UK is using today is that Russia is forecast to grow this year, unlike the UK. And that speaks to a whole range of issues to do with not just the way in which the UK economy is really, really struggling. Um, but Russia, for example, you can draw conclusions from that forecast, which is things like sanctions aren't working. And there are all sorts of economic and political and other consequences associated with that. The best way to summarize what's going on in terms of the pure numbers surrounding the economic debate, which, of course, is very complicated. There are lots and lots of numbers that I could give you to show you just how deep is the hole. But let me quote an article written by somebody called Tim Harford, who's an Oxford-based economist who writes regularly for the Financial Times. And in the last few days, he had a prominent article in the FT, which uh, asked the question, is life in the UK really as bad as the numbers suggest? That was the question he posed, and he had a three-word answer. Yes, it is. Yes. And then he went through the numbers. And there are all sorts of numbers that, as I say, I could quote at you. But the best one, the one that Harford used, the one that I have used in my own writing and podcasting, is median household income per person. Um, And that sounds geeky, but it really tries to capture, if you're in the middle of the, if you're Mr. or Mrs. Average in the UK, how are you doing? And really, for this century now, in 2023, that measure of income has barely grown in the UK. You've been standing still. And that stands in stark contrast to the other members of the G7. If you look at the US, Canada, um, countries that are not in the G7, like Australia, but countries that we like to compare ourselves to, Germany, France, they're all doing much, much better. So in absolute terms, we're standing still. And in relative terms, we're falling far, far behind. And the the the, um, the the numbers and the text around Tim Harford's article are very very stark. Uh, it, he describes it as a slow burning catastrophe. He uses that word catastrophe, yes. and it goes back many many years. There are it's 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 a who done it mystery. When you ask the question who killed the British economy, it's like a murder mystery. And there are a list of suspects. Some of them are very obvious. This is an economy in which we don't spend any money on investment relative to other countries. Our investment track record is appalling, going back many, many years. Uh, The education system has to be fingered. There is a list of suspects like that. Of course, the B word has to be mentioned, Brexit. Brexit, That's a suspect. But the the answer to that whodunit question, Eamon, is all of them. They all did it. And so we are now in a real crisis situation that Harford described as a catastrophe. And the Chancellor last week, basically addressing people like Tim Harford, dare I say people like Chris Johns, who've been saying similar things, and accused us of declinism. Yes. 
And the response that we give is, which this is not about forecasts. This is not about describing Britain over the next year or two or 10. This is about the numbers of the recent past and going back really 15 years. And it's a real, real problem. On the question of Brexit, Chris, the EU and Britain had a very close trading relationship. And the last figure I saw was that 16% of Britain's business with the EU was gone as a result of Brexit. That's a lot, isn't it? Yes. And this question of trade is really at the heart of the Brexit debacle. Um, There are other issues, but trade is where the focus usually is. And this is a tough one for uh, economists to try and explain and get over just what, what is going on with the trading relationship with Europe and indeed the rest of the world, because trade itself is a mind-numbingly complicated area. If you are a trade negotiator, for, for example, negotiating these trade deals that the UK keeps trying to have with Europe, with the rest of the world, you are um, steeped in mafia-style negotiations. They are that tough in terms of what you have to talk about. It's mind-numbing detail. You have to talk about chlorinated chickens. You have to talk about um, access Uh, for drug companies to the NHS, and a million and one other line item details. It's really, really tricky. And it was interesting to see the BBC the other day trying to explain all of this on a news program in which it cited the statistics that you just quoted and tried to explain, well, this is what has happened to trade with the EU since we left the um, EU um, almost three years ago to the day, of course, um, at the the end of January. Uh, And um, it showed that trade is, is done uh, as essentially flatlined. And in real terms, you might, well, that's not too bad that the, the, our exports to the EU, they, they fell a bit and they've recovered a bit. So maybe that's not too bad. And you have to try and create something called the counterfactual, which is what would have happened if we hadn't left the EU. And that's where it gets really hard to try and explain. Yes. And you then go and look at what other countries' exports to each other have done. And of course, they've grown a lot. And it's this point about flatlining again. There's a kind of a dotted line to the lack of growth point that I was making earlier on. Our exports may be holding up um, in aggregate, but there are sectoral difficulties, and I'll mention those in a second. But if you're flatlining in your key areas of growth, like investment, like like trade, um, then your overall economy is being held back relative to where it would otherwise have been. Because what we would say is that if we'd stayed in the EU, our exports would have grown. They wouldn't have flatlined. But we don't live the counterfactual. We're living with what we've got. Where the trade thing is really that that rubber, economic rubber is hitting the road is is in the small and medium-sized enterprises sector. There, A lot of companies have given up exporting to the EU because it's just too hard from a regulatory form-filling point of view. The bigger companies are handling it reasonably well. But it's the smaller companies that are really, really struggling with with this uh, new trading relationship with the EU. So it's holding us back. It's not an economic. This trade thing is is contributing to the economic catastrophe, but it's only one part of it. There are lots of other moving parts as well. The trade is a real problem, particularly for small and medium sized enterprises. Yes, because a lot of workers have left Britain. A lot of people who were from the EU. I saw a man who owned a restaurant explaining he ha- he's going to have to close because, in fact, it's, it's a, a, a good restaurant, but he can't get 
staff and he referred to Brexit and he referred to the fact that the kind of people who used to work in his restaurant aren't there anymore, they've gone home. That's right. And on a Newsnight special, the flagship programme of BBC Current Affairs uh, to commemorate the third anniversary of Brexit the other night, they had a, a guy on, a small businessman, explaining uh, just what Brexit had meant for him. You talked about uh, somebody in the retail trade. This is somebody uh, in the manufacturing sector, uh, a smaller company, and he actually quoted the, the number of pounds sterling that the Brexit trading relationship with Europe is now costing him year over year. Um, and it's it's an unmanageable sum of money for him. And he, he, he was clearly in despair. Um, and so he was a great exemplar of, of what I'm talking about here. But th- th- those are the economic dimensions. On that program, for example, they had another gentleman who was explaining what happens to him and his wife following the Brexit referendum. And this guy was British, born and bred, but British. And um, clearly his wife uh, is, is from some other ethnicity. And in the, the days following the Brexit referendum, she was accosted on her high street by somebody who said, great, We've won the Brexit referendum. We've got our country back. Now we want you to go back to yours. Yes. And th- that's so, so there are, there are economic dimensions to the Brexit debate. There are non-economic ones. And, and they all point in the same direction. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Now, the Tory party, as we've said, and everyone knows, has been in power for 13 years. And the present Tory party take Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, two recent prime ministers, who are, in one way or another, seriously damaged people. Even at the moment, with Rishi Sunak, who, as far as we know, is clean, he's sitting beside him at leaders' questions the other day, was his deputy, Dominic Raab. Dominic Raab has had 24 serious bullying charges levelled against him, which are being investigated. On Sunday, Nadine Zahawi had to be sacked. He was chair of the Conservative Party. He was also a minister without portfolio, entitled to sit in cabinet. And when he made his settlement and paid a fine to the revenue services, he was, in fact, having been appointed by Boris Johnson, Chancellor of the Exchequer. And at the same time, these people on the streets today, railway workers, teachers and people like that, are watching the sleaze, the arrogance, the indifference, really, to allow Zahawi to become Chancellor of the Exchequer and even to keep him as chair of the Conservative Party when, in fact, his tax troubles have been known for some time. So is it a Tory attempt, and I spoke about Margaret Thatcher there before, to take the state out of things and to free people from the shackles of the state and therefore to make everything from health to education, to the railways. Privatisation of railways has been a disaster in Britain, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And as, as I hinted earlier on, that they've been semi-nationalised in many cases uh, in recent years, almost nationalisation by stealth, as the government has had to take over or get involved with various failing I suppose the question I want to ask you, Chris, from your economic perspective, and just someone who spends an awful lot of time in the UK, is this... The end of the Thatcherite experiment, it has failed. And these consequences you are now living with in Britain. That would suggest that, going back to the first and part I liked Mrs. Testament, Thatcher. I liked her courage. Yeah. I liked her com- conviction. And she was a conviction politician. She believed yes. it. So I don't, I'm not whacking her for the sake of it. No, the, f- the first part of your question suggested that, you know, in Consistent with the satirite ideology, was that continued, particularly by Cameron and uh, Osborne, to shrink the size of the state? Yeah. I think that Cameron and Osborne did have that agenda, well hidden. Well, perhaps it wasn't that well hidden, actually. It's, it's blindingly obvious if you think about it in terms of what they did in terms of austerity and the explicit shrinking of the state that that involved. I don't think this lot are as coherent or as well thought out yes. as those earlier politicians Um, I think that uh, they are performative, um, and the best example of that, of course, is Boris Johnson himself. They're not not deep strategic thinkers about the future of Britain. If they were, they would would first of all recognize the problems that we have and would be coming up with credible solutions rather than vacuous five-point plans, which is what Sunak has done recently, um, to, to, to try and deal with them. Nothing that they are coming up with is is able is coming close to uh, dealing with the problems that we face. When the Chancellor made that speech last week that I referred to earlier on, 
the reaction of British industry, the CBI, was to say it's empty. There's nothing there. And that is a broader problem. There is nothing there. I'm not sure that they are strategically well thought out to be that uh, conspiratorial, yes. if you like, to say that this is all about the shrinking of the state. So I think it's more cock up than conspiracy. I just think they're, they're not very good. You mentioned Thatcher. One of the themes that the Conservative Party is trying to push at the moment is that he's going to do a John Major. Now, you might remember that John Major went into the 1992 election well behind in the polls and staged a surprised victory. And there are lots of people who are saying maybe that's what Sunak can now do in the, the election that is due in, within the next two years. And of course, the thing that you need to point out there is that, first of all, he wasn't anywhere near as behind in the polls as, as Sunak is. That's John Major. And secondly, and this relates to your comments about people like Dominic Raab, um, Major had a lot of intellectual heavyweights in his shadow, yes. in, in, his, in his cabinet. And he also had a lot of intellectual heavyweights that were dedicated to public service. And yes. you know the names of those sorts of people. Yes, Ken Clark, have, Ken Clark, Hazeltine, and people et, of that. Etc., etc. Yeah. Uh, Sunak doesn't have anybody like that. He yeah. has Dominic Raab. And so the comparison just doesn't stand up for, to, to any kind of scrutiny whatsoever. Um, this lot are lightweights. Um, they are performative. Um, they are not serious politicians, and they are going nowhere near addressing the very serious problems that Britain has. In fact, they refuse to recognize the serious problems that Britain has. That uh, I, I think the best example of that I can give is Jeremy Hunt's response to the data that shows Britain's decline is to accuse us of declinism, which is to simply miss the point and, and stick your, well, frankly, stick your head in the sand and to, to, to deny the numbers. Every time we have this conversation, Chris, my mind goes back to one of the consequences of Brexit, which is the Northern Ireland Protocol and the intractable nature of that problem, because I can't see the British having the will. I think Sunak doesn't know very much about Northern Ireland, or indeed does his Northern Secretary. And this is a big problem for us here, because it, to fix that problem, they're going to have to do something original and something strong and conciliatory. And there is no appearance of any of those qualities in that particular cabinet, if you consider Dominic Rabb and uh, Nadine Zahawi, a spiv on the one hand and a serious bully by the looks of things on the other. That's where the British government is at. Yeah, the, the wires are full today of uh, people, anonymous people, briefing journalists about the outlines and indeed the details of a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it involves things like red and green lanes for goods going into Northern Ireland from GB. Um, the green lane will be for those goods that are solely uh, destined for uh, shops and uh, companies in Northern Ireland. And the red lane, where there will be checks, will be for those goods that are actually destined for you in the Republic of Ireland. The role of the ECJ is being pushed backwards. There will still be a role for it, but uh, only in extremists, it seems to be. And uh, everybody is asking the question. It's the lead on the online version of the Financial Times for this, this morning about Sunak's big decision about being able to sell this, because uh, we think that the red line for either 
and or the DUP and or the ERG is that e, um, ECJ involvement? Yeah. And the question being asked is: is does does Sunak have the cojones to actually sell this um, and stand up to the people who say that we will bring him down? And there are reports that Johnson Johnson is is first in the queue waiting to um, try and take Sunak out yes. if he does dilute the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Lord Frost, our old friend that you and I have talked about yeah. many, many times this morning, has, has fired the first warning shots in this battle over the deal that is supposedly close to being agreed with the EU, in which he, uh, for example, has said that Sunak has allowed the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill to die in the Lords, um, which is an interesting way of putting it. But certainly that Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which which caused so much controversy, which was the subject for you and I to discuss yes. throughout much of last year, has died in the Lords. It's still just about alive, but it's, it's not in very good condition because it looks like it's going to be superseded by this by this deal. And I think this will be the ultimate test of Sunak because if he gets this deal through, and he may well need the votes of the Labour Party to do this. This is that would be an interesting yes. aspect of this that he would have to take up Keir Starmer's offer of Labour Party, and support. of course he has to take on the DUP. Absolutely, because their bottom line is, and they're not shifting, is they want to go back to pre-Brexit rules and agreements. That's right. Their position within the United Kingdom must be the same as it was before Brexit. And that's, yeah. not, that's not actually possible, is it? And to give you a flavour for just how, how febrile this is, for how fundamentalist and how loopy this is, that same programme I referred to earlier on, the Newsnight uh, celebration, if you like, or recognition of the birth of Brexit three years ago, its birthday party, if you like, um, there was a guy on the panel called Ben Habib, who um, is a businessman, a property yes. developer type guy, and he was an MEP for He's the, in Brexit, the Brexit, Party. Brexit Party, isn't he? That's right. Yep. And he was a significant figure, if not the actual leader for a while, of the Leave campaign. So a pure Brexiteer. If he was in the House of Commons, he would be a member of the ERG. And he proudly told the audience um, in Milton Keynes and everybody that was watching that he has brought court cases of various kinds against the British government over the Northern Ireland issue, because he believes, and this is what these people do say, Eamon, it's incredible, that the integrity, the territorial and constitutional integrity of the United Kingdom has been fundamentally broken by this government, by Boris Johnson's own Brexit deal, by leaving, and I'm quoting here, by leaving Northern Ireland, languishing in the EU. You couldn't make this stuff up. <laughs> but that's, that's exactly the way they see it. I mean, yes. and the Good Friday Agreement allows that no change in the status of the North of Ireland can be undertaken without the consent of all the parties. And there's no sign of the consent of the DUP because effectively, Chris, with Brexit, the status of the North has to change in order for trade to continue and in order, most importantly, to prevent a hard border in this country. Yes, and it's a circle we keep trying to square time after time, thinking it through. The latest iteration is this nascent deal that is now being much talked about, 
and frankly, how the the, the DUP will um, will accept it or reject it. I suppose the smart money, given their track record, is that they will reject it, and that therefore um, Stormont will not be reconstituted, and we'll have to deal with that crisis once the deal has gone through with Labour Party votes, the help of Labour Party votes in the House of Commons. How that plays out, I mean, God only knows. But it, it, it's 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 not the end of this. It's not just Sunak agreeing this deal with the EU, difficult though that is going to be, and difficult the actual vote and debate in the House of Commons is going to be about who is going to be who are, who the rebels are going to be. He may well get it through the House of Commons if it gets that far. If he's got the backbone to take it that far, but then standing up to the DUP by definition means um, they're going to push back. Yeah. And that, that for Ireland is, is going to be critical. Just a final question about our own GDP, our own growth last year, 12.2%, mainly attributed to the pharmaceutical industries. People have been contrasting that with it's the biggest growth in the world, I think, by some way. It doesn't, though, does it, Chris, equal prosperity? Tell us what the significance of that is. And, and we're talking as the, in the context of Britain growing by 0.6% or... Well, numbers schmumbers, as, as we economists like to say, the 12.2% is GDP, which economists yeah. don't pay an awful lot of attention to in an Irish context because of the distortions created not just by pharmaceuticals, but also by chemicals and technology companies. Yes. Uh, the Central Statistics Office in Ireland um, produce all sorts of different numbers now. They adjust that GDP number to try and get a sense of what the real domestic economy is doing. And that those numbers won't be uh, produced until next month in March, we think. And they will show, as they have done over the last few years, a much slower growth rate. But nevertheless, still quite a robust one. In real underlying what it feels like for Ireland terms, the economy probably grew last year by about 5% in real terms, which is no mean feat, given yes. that the, the Europe only achieved just over half that. Um, Europe as a whole in the fourth quarter of last year seemed to, we think, grow at about 0.1%. It wouldn't have done that if it hadn't been for the 12.2 that Ireland does, because this number is real because it does feed into those Eurozone numbers, which are now showing some small growth. Right. Um, they, Euro, you, the Eurozone wouldn't be growing if it wasn't for Ireland in the fourth quarter of last year, it seems likely. But that's the only way in which these numbers um, do affect anything. But, but GDP you know, does mean something for things like um, debt ratios. A very important number is your debt-to-GDP ratio, which is still something that a lot of international types do look at. And given that that 12.2% was in real terms, when you think about inflation being about 10% last year in Ireland, very, very roughly, round numbers, um, it means that your, G your nominal GDP, which is the number that goes into your debt-GDP ratio, um, uh, it probably increased by 20 25%. And that means that your debt-GDP ratio fell by that uh, number commensurately. So it, it, does ha it, it is important. It's not the most, the most important number, and it certainly doesn't reflect what it feels like on the ground in Ireland. But, no, no, but we have a serious housing problem and also with our health service. Just a final question, Chris. The Tories appear to be drafting anti-strike legislation in the context of what's happening to working people in Britain. Are they mad? 
yeah, this it, it's 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 irrelevant, and and again, it's 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 um, a non-solution to a problem that they refused to recognise, and and the problem is that you you simply cannot keep doing what you've do, you're doing to these workers, which is eroding their real li- yes. living standards year by year by year, and and I think that we've hit the wall there, and whether you forbid them from striking, whether you I think the legislation is more to provide minimum service levels during strikes rather than to right. abolish strikes altogether. But the, the 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 point about about the public sector and the strikes is is part of a broader picture, which um, relates very much to that comparison with Ireland that we've just drawn. I've talked there about an Irish economy asking the question: Well, how much did it grow? Was it twelve percent? Was it five percent? But the salient point is that the Irish economy is growing yes. a lot. Yes. The American economy is growing, not by as much as Ireland, but it is growing. The problem that Britain has, Ireland and Eamon, that Britain hasn't actually had any growth for a long period of time now. So if you think about the debates, the political debates, yes. not just the economic one in Ireland, is that what you're trying to do is you're, you're arguing about how you share out that economic growth. Yes. And depending on where you are on the political spectrum, you say it should be shared out equally, or if you, if you are of this persuasion, you could say that winner takes all. In, this, in the States, it's the same thing. The problem the United States has is that it is growing, but the, the elite, the top 1% in recent years, have been grabbing all of the growth. The American dream is over. It's not being sh- The rising tide is not lifting all yes. boats. The growth is there is not being shared. Think about the problem, though, in the UK. We've no growth. So we can't have that political fight that you're having, that the yes. Americans are having, over who gets the benefits of economic growth. If you want to improve your economic position in the UK, which is now a no-growth economy, you have to do it at the expense of somebody else. And that is poisonous. And that is why we have poisonous politics and a society that is so divided. If you're Boris Johnson and you want to increase your personal wealth by £800,000, what you do, (laughs) apparently, is uh, get your mate to find somebody wealthy enough to lend you that money and then make your mate chairman of the BBC. Well, that's exactly right, Amy, because that speaks <laughs> to what I'm saying, which is that if you want to do better, economically speaking, if you want more, you've got two ways of doing it in Britain now, which is that you either take it from somebody else in Britain or you borrow somebody's money from overseas. Okay, Chris. As always, a pleasure to talk to you and we're very grateful to you as are all our listeners thanks to Chris Johns thanks to all of you for listening that's all we have time for now we'll talk to you soon when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.